Israel sharpens U.S. focus on the conflict in Syria. Today, Monday, May 6. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Israel won't confirm it launched them, but yesterday's airstrikes inside Syria have increased tension in the Mideast. We'll hear what that means for Syria and U.S. policy in the region. And later, families divided by their immigration status meet in a park that straddles the U.S.-Mexico border. This park is, is, to me, the heart and soul of this whole immigration issue, because love, like friendship, has no borders. Plus, how the great British dancer Frederick Franklin got his start in a meeting with a Russian choreographer. I looked into those big brown eyes, and he looked at me, and before long he said, uh, you will be a premier dancer in my new ballet company, here's a contract for five years, sign it, and I just signed it. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Womenheart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. And by PBS, presenting TED Talks Education. John Legend hosts Jeffrey Canada, Bill Gates, and America's leading thinkers and educators on TED's first television show. Airs Tuesday at 10, 9 central, only on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Israel isn't confirming anything officially, but that's not stopping Syria from blaming Israel for the airstrikes that hit military targets near Damascus yesterday. A senior Syrian government official called the strikes an act of war. Israel has hit targets in Syria before and has repeatedly warned it would take action to stop weapons being shipped through Syria to the Lebanon-based militant group Hezbollah. Coming up, we'll hear how the airstrikes this weekend could affect U.S. policy in the region. First, though, we turn to Jerusalem and the world's Middle East correspondent, Matthew Bell. The Syrian government says Israel's attacks inside Syria are a flagrant violation of international law and that they are making the Middle East more dangerous. Omran Zawabi is Syria's Minister of Information. The government of the Arab Syrian Republic stresses that this aggression opens the door to all possibilities, especially since it clearly reveals, without a doubt, the degree of the relationship between the components of the war on Syria with the terrorists and Zionist tools. Zawabi said Syria reserves the right to respond by any means necessary. Anti-government activists in Syria said at least 42 regime soldiers died in yesterday's attack at a military research facility outside Damascus. Residents described a huge explosion that felt like a mild earthquake. Ofer Zaltzberg, with the International Crisis Group, says contrary to Syria's claims, Israel is not trying to intervene in the conflict there. Israel is not trying to join civil war dynamics. It is uh, setting this red line in terms of specifically not having Iran and Hezbollah exporting long-range rockets out of uh, Syria into Lebanon. And it is trying to stay as neutral as it can in terms of the um, conflict between the so-called opposition and Assad's regime. Israel has edged closer to choosing sides by warming up to both Turkey and Jordan, two countries that have been critical of Syria's government and supportive of the opposition. Still, Salzburg says the Israeli leadership seems to be confident that neither Syria nor Hezbollah is willing to retaliate in response. Even after these uh, supposed attacks, Prime Minister Netanyahu is going uh, to China for uh, several days. 
He postponed his departure by two hours. He had one last discussion. He decided he can go and promote trade relations between Israel and China. He's not worried about uh, the eruption of a war. On the street in Jerusalem today, there were signs of support from the Israeli public. Israel should take any measures necessary to protect itself as any rational country or state would do. Israel didn't attack Syria. Israel attacked specifically things that were going to terrorist organizations. Syria itself, Iran itself, should be happy that we stopped it from getting into the hands of terrorists. That was Jerusalem resident Stephen Lubel and a reserve soldier who gave the name Aryeh. The Syrian opposition today, publicly at least, condemned any Israeli airstrikes inside Syria. So did the Arab League, and Iran said Israel is playing with fire. As a precaution, perhaps, Israel just deployed two of its Iron Dome anti-missile batteries closer to Lebanon and Syria. The head of Israel's northern command told Israeli media that it's always good to prepare, but he added that there are no winds of war blowing through the region. When it comes to the military standoff between Israel and Hezbollah, though, it doesn't take much for those winds to get whipped up. Back in 2006, a border skirmish quickly turned into an all-out war. Again, security analyst Ofer Zalsberg. This could happen again. The chances are low, but it's not something one can rule out. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. We now turn to Vali Nasser. He's the dean of the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. In your view, why do you think Israel has been bombing sites inside Syria? Well, Israel has for long been worried about Iranian supply of Hezbollah. And uh, it may have concluded that in the conditions of war and escalation in Syria, that Iran may be stepping up that supply. Or it had seen an opportunity to disrupt the supply lines and send both Iran and Hezbollah a strong message. And I think also Israel is getting worried about generally the crisis in Syria and is becoming much more ready to act to defend its interests. I mean, there have seemingly been few moments that have felt as consequential as this one in the last uh, two-plus years as this war in Syria has evolved. Do you see it as a turning point, and how does it affect the U.S.? Well, it is a turning point in the sense that it's a clear indication that Syria is turning into a proxy war between Iran and Israel, and also that it's going to become a manifestation of the Arab-Israeli conflict if Israel is seen in the Arab street to be bombing and Arab targets inside of Syria. And that basically will metamorphose this uh, conflict into something other than just a humanitarian tragedy and opposition stand against the Assad regime. It becomes much more of a regional war and an Arab-Israeli conflict. And that will change the calculation in Washington. I think it will put much more pressure on the administration to get involved in this conflict. I mean, the use of chemical weapons in Syria was defined as a red line uh, by the Obama White House for intervention. Uh, so is this a new red line? Well, yes, it's a new red line, and it's a sharper one, largely because even the chemical weapons used now added urgency because it now could involve Israel or a retaliation against Israel. But also the United States can no longer look at this conflict as a humanitarian tragedy in a faraway place that does not impact either the United States or one of its most vital allies in the region. So the U.S. will feel some urgency in trying to bring this conflict to an end, or at least to get engaged in a way that would prevent it to spiral out of control and become a wider regional and Israeli-Arab conflict. So domestically, can uh, President Obama use the kind of a proxy war argument uh, as an easy argument to intervene in Syria? I think the president has to define for the American public 
what are American interests in Syria? Why should we care about the fate of that country and how the outcome can impact the United States and its vital interests in the Middle East? I think that hasn't been done. And I think the Israeli engagement in this conflict could suggest to the American public that this is more than just an internal Syrian matter and has already found critical regional ramifications. For instance, we see that large parts of Syria is falling into the control of al-Qaeda. That ultimately can force the United States to take a military action against Syria. It is much better to prevent that trend from continuing by finding some kind of a solution other than military intervention to it at this stage when that might still be possible. So can you sharpen the focus for us on on how the U.S. debate on Syria has been reoriented after these airstrikes? I mean, what's it sounding like in Washington today? Well, I think there is still resistance on the part of the administration to get engaged in this conflict. And I think that there is now worry that this absence of American leadership is leading to different actors in the region to react to the conflict in their own ways, which can only worsen the conflict. So the, the decision by Israel to bomb the targets within Syria suggests that Israel is decided to take matters into its own hand and to act unilaterally. And that ultimately means that this conflict can become much bigger and go in directions that the United States had not anticipated. And any kind of an Israeli engagement in an Arab country, which could lead to a retaliation either by Iran or the change in the tenor of public discussion in the Arab world, is of direct significance to the United States. And and I think that's the greatest reason why the United States has to get engaged. If not militarily, at least diplomatically, in order to find a way to bring this conflict to an end sooner rather than later. Vali Nasser, author of the new book, The Dispensable Nation, American Foreign Policy and Retreat. Always good to speak with you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Each summer on some farmland not far from Brussels, Belgium, an epic battle takes place. This one not real. Reenactors stage the Battle of Waterloo. Thousands gather to act out and watch Napoleon's defeat at the hands of Wellington. Every year it's a big production, but the one in 2015 will be a very big deal. That's because it's the 200th anniversary of the real battle. So for that one, it's really important to choose the right guy to play Napoleon. The world's Clark Boyd spoke with one of the top candidates. Napoleon Bonaparte sits down for our Skype interview. Seriously. How do I know? Well, straight off, he tells me so. Je suis Napoleon Bonaparte, l'empereur des Français, etc., etc. Okay, I know this is actually an American named Mark Schneider, but I'm telling you, Schneider looks like Napoleon. The hat, the medals, the I'm going to mop the battlefield with you stare. I don't really believe I am Napoleon, I assure you. Ah, whew, I'll scratch the whole Napoleon complex thing. But if I were choosing Napoleon for Waterloo in 2015, Schneider would definitely get the nod. I jokingly say that I've been preparing for this role my entire life. (laughs) My mother's French and my dad is American, so I had a a connection with France. Uh, When I was about two years old, I received a toy soldier from a French cousin. She came to the United States for a visit, and one was Napoleon and several of his imperial guardsmen. And my mother says, the rest is history. (laughs) Growing up, Schneider didn't have Superman or Batman posters on his walls. He had a picture of Napoleon. He liked to dress up as a French soldier and act out famous battles. 
Schneider served in the U.S. Army during the 1990s. After he left the service, an Army buddy asked him to join a Napoleonic-era cavalry reenactment group here in the United States. A year later, Schneider says the group needed someone to play Napoleon. And everybody said, oh, you look like Napoleon. You're the same height. You were born in 1969, and he was born in 1769. Schneider started getting gigs playing Napoleon in documentaries for the History Channel. Then, in 2005, the Waterloo Committee, the group that organizes the yearly reenactment in Belgium, got in touch. And they requested uh, that I come to Europe to portray Napoleon for the Battle of Waterloo. I couldn't believe it. It was a dream come true. Uh, So I sent them uh, a resume, if you will, of events that I had done here in America, as well as some pictures. And they said, "Okay, well, come on over. So my first uh, European event as Napoleon was at Waterloo. Other Europe-based Napoleon jobs quickly followed. Take a quick spin through YouTube and you can watch Schneider ride through the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin to the delight of his troops. There he is again at a reenactment of the Battle of Borodino outside Moscow, brandishing a sword amidst the gunfire. And of course, rallying the troops before a big battle. Schneider concedes that, despite his experience, some in Europe might balk at handing an American the reins for the 200th anniversary of Waterloo. But then again, he says, remember Napoleon's own background. He's certainly a Frenchman, but he's from the island of Corsica. His first language was Italian. Schneider even puts on a Corsican accent when he plays the role. But he's got strong competition. An actual Frenchman and a Belgian are vying for the Waterloo role in 2015. Schneider won't trash talk his rivals. For me, speaking for myself, though I would love to do it, if I am not selected, that's okay too. I've had a wonderful run uh, as Napoleon. Not that I'm giving up. (laughs) I certainly hope I'm selected, but uh, I think we'll, we'll all be able to do a great job and bring history to life. Which Schneider does one more time in our interview. I ask him to give me his favorite Napoleon speech. He signs off with the speech that Napoleon used to rally his troops on the eve of the Battle of Austerlitz. For the world, this is Clark Boyd. <laughs> Judge for yourself. Do you think Mark Schneider looks like Napoleon? We've got pictures and video of Mark in action. Add your thoughts at PRI. Sorry, add your thoughts at theworld.org. That's the address. Still ahead on The World, remembering the man who danced through the 20th century. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. At the western end of the U.S.-Mexico border, there's a bluff overlooking the Pacific. A high fence splits this bluff into two. On the Mexican side, you've got a paved city plaza behind a bullring in Tijuana. On the California side, it's a no-man's land patrolled by border guards. But on weekends, it becomes a place where family members separated by immigration status can reunite, even if they're on opposite sides of a fence. Reporter Valerie Hamilton has that story. Jimena Angulo has never met her father. Jimena was born in Tijuana five years ago. Her father, Luis, is a U.S. citizen, but he has legal problems and so for now isn't allowed to travel to Mexico. 
So they're meeting here for the first time on opposite sides of a 17-foot metal fence. A friend of mine, she told me that uh, you can come to this park and to see the, your family, you know, far, but you can see them. Families separated by the border have been meeting here for decades, since the fence was just a strand of barbed wire leading out toward the beach. The U.S. built the first real wall in the 1990s to stop illegal immigration at the border's western edge. In 2009, a second fence behind the first one penned off the U.S. side. It's not a very welcoming place. It's an ugly wall, you know what I mean, that kind of like... It, it, it shows almost like a disunity, like, hey, you're, you're an alien. Juan Carlos Rodriguez Montes was brought to the U.S. illegally as a child. He was deported to Mexico in 2011, but his family is still in California. One of my older sisters is not allowed to cross until she fixes certain things on her immigration status. And, I mean, this would be the place where I, I get to see her in person. Actually, it's hard to see anything through the fence. On the U.S. side, it's reinforced with a thick steel mesh. From a few feet away, the wall looks solid. When you get close up, you can just barely make out people's faces through the holes. Jimena slips two little fingers through, and on the other side, her father takes them in his hands. Ay, qué bonitas manos tienes. <laughs> what pretty hands you have, he says. I love you, princess. The border divides family members for all kinds of reasons. Some are undocumented, some have been deported. One study found that half of all deportees leave behind family in the U.S. Others, like Luis and Jimena, just get stuck in the tangles of bureaucracy and their own complicated lives. This park is, is to me, the heart and soul of this whole immigration issue. Border activist Enrique Morones won Mexico's National Human Rights Prize in 2009. He calls the park a sacred place for divided families, but he hopes someday they'll be able to meet without a fence between them. Because love, like friendship, has no borders. On this day, there's a special event at the park, celebrating Mexico's Children's Day with music and toys. For the first time, U.S. border officers are opening the gate in the fence, a symbolic gesture of friendship. The gate was rusted shut, and they had to loosen it up with a blowtorch. Luis Angulo walks right up to the border line. The guards have given permission for Jimena to come to him, just while the gate is open. He scoops her up for a hug, their first ever. She wraps her arms around his neck. I feel her little heart, you know, and it was really, really exciting for me, you know, uh, a miracle. But two minutes later, the gate closes again, and the miracle is over. Jimena's grandfather, Jose Luis, brought her to the park today. He says the U.S. has an obligation to reunite children with their parents. He hopes immigration reform will pave the way. Many divided families hope reforms could bring them together by creating a path to legal status in the U.S., reconsidering some deportations and easing family visas. Some of those who now meet at Friendship Park could be reunited on the same side of the fence. But until then, they have this place where Jimena can touch her father's hands. For The World, I'm Valerie Hamilton on the U.S.-Mexico border.
we have photos and video of Jimena and Luis meeting for the first time at the opening of the gate. It's all at theworld.org. The Spanish that's spoken here in the United States is a far cry from the language that began on the Iberian Peninsula when the Romans invaded. The long history of the language is documented in a new book called The Story of Spanish. The authors, Julie Barlow and Jean-Benoit Nadeau, came to the United States to do part of their research. Our language editor, Patrick Cox, spoke with Julie Barlow. And Patrick, Spanish seems to be a language that's always been on the move, hasn't it? Very much so. There's no language that ever stands still, but Spanish really has moved as a result of wave upon wave of invasion of the Iberian Peninsula and also the history of Spanish more recently of its uh, expansion to the Americas. Of course, one of the most influential eras for the Spanish language was the Arab occupation of Spain. And we're talking way back. I mean, the bookend for that period was like 1200. That's right. And yet so many of these Arabic words and phrases are with Spanish today. And Julie Barlow, she told me that it was pretty soon after the Arabs left Spain that a certain King Alfonso X of Castile, he decided that he'd use language to forge power. He decided that what he had to do was make Spanish everybody speak the same language. So he looks around for what's going on and what's prestigious and interesting in Spain. And of course, it's all in Arabic. And he decides to launch this huge project of translating all these Arabic classics into Spanish. And then it becomes a trend in Spanish to define the language, to define the vocabulary of the language, define spelling rules, which is very avant-garde. And this is long before the French Academy has been established. Right. So Julie Barlow, they're talking about the French Academy. That'd be the Académie Française, the austere organization in France that oversees the health and evolution of French. And that's a little hint or a pretty big hint of how this book looks at Spanish. It it very much compares it to French and how French has progressed. And, And I think you can hear in this comment coming up from Julie Barlow how intrigued she is at how these two romance languages, how the people who speak the language and control the language, how they have really set different paths for each of them. French is a language that's controlled by one country. Spanish is completely different. Spain was overcome numerically by its own empire, and it very quickly in its history learned to share control of the language. So the Royal Academy in in Madrid creates its standard by taking into consideration all the Spanish that's spoken. It's very much a language about sharing control and about diversity. And speaking of control and diversity, Julie Barlow and Jean-Benoit Nadeau, they moved to Phoenix, Arizona to write this book. And where did they move from? They moved from Canada, which, of course, has very different feelings about language to the United States. They were struck by uh, some attitudes in Phoenix toward the Spanish language from native Spanish speakers. Mm, I'm sure they did. Immigrants are convinced that they can't keep their language. They can't teach their kids Spanish or they won't make it into English United States. This was like eye-opening for us because, of course, it's the opposite in Canada. Everybody wants to learn French. French is an officially recognized language, and it will get you a job in the government. In the United States, there's a similar idea among white people who want their kids to learn Spanish, but the perfectly bilingual Spanish kids are hearing from their parents, you know, English, 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 forget your Spanish. That was Julie Barlow. She's the author, together with Jean-Benoit Nadeau, of the book The Story of Spanish, which comes out tomorrow. And you can hear Barlow in conversation with our language editor, Patrick Cox, in the latest World in Words podcast. Just go to theworld.org. Patrick, thanks a lot. You're very welcome, Marco. And this is PRI. 
I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, members of an Iranian band used to play for their friends until a cameo in a movie blew their cover. That's extremely illegal to do that uh, without a permission. So, like, yeah, after the movie, like, won a can prize and exploded. After that, we thought, yeah, it's the time to get the hell out of here. <laughs> PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients, who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. And by PBS, presenting Constitution USA with Peter Sagal, a look at how our Constitution keeps pace with modern America. Starts Tuesday at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Three weeks after the city was stunned by the blast near the Boston Marathon's finish line, the body of deceased suspect Tamerlan Sarnayev has yet to be buried. An uncle has claimed the remains currently inside a funeral home in Worcester, about an hour west of Boston. Funeral director Peter Steffen is trying to find a cemetery that would accept the body, but it's been difficult, as Steffen told reporters from the Worcester Telegram and Gazette yesterday. Guy has to be buried. This country we bury people, whatever it is. And people ask, oh, you'd bury Hitler and Stalin? Yes, absolutely. I'm not going to be inconsistent with it. We bury the dead. That's it. City officials in Cambridge, where Tamerlan Sarnayev lived, have refused to allow his burial there, and they're not alone in not wanting to get involved. We made several calls to Muslim religious leaders in the Boston area, some of whom have themselves declined to help in the Sarnayev burial, but none of them called back. We had to go as far as Winnipeg in Canada to find a Muslim leader willing to speak with us about this. Shahina Siddiqui is president of the Islamic Social Services Association in Winnipeg. She says she's upset by the problems the family is having in finding a resting place for the Boston bombing suspect. I'm quite sad about this development because I really feel that regardless of how a person has lived their lives, everyone should get their last rights. Even for murderers, even serial killers, they get their last rights, right? Mm. Um, So I think it's important uh, that we remember that um, the judgment is with God, and he will uh, have to answer for his actions. And as a Muslim, we believe in heaven and hell as well, right, like real places. So God knows where he's going to end up. I know people are angry and people are afraid, but I think we have to rise above this negativity and, and just quietly do what we have to do and, and leave the judgment to God. Tell us what is involved in giving last rites in Muslim tradition. It's very simple. It's a washing of the body, a ritual washing. Then the body is wrapped in white cotton sheets, and then a prayer is said over. There is no prostration or bowing in the funeral prayer. It takes not more than five minutes. Uh, You first recite the opening chapter of the Quran in the first section. The second section, you would call on God to uh, forgive and have mercy on all Muslims who have gone before and who are to follow. Uh, and then you say in salvation on the Prophet um, Muhammad and, and Prophet Abraham and his progeny. And that's it. Are there different interpretations of the ritual that vary from country to country or from group to group? Uh, no, this is the basic. Some may add something to it. For example, in North America, we bring the body to the mosque for the funeral prayer, and then we proceed to the cemetery. In most Muslim countries, uh, the prayer is done right at the place of burial. 
Where are those rules prescribed? Uh, is it in the Quran? Uh, they are in the Quran, and they are also have been further explained and demonstrated by the Prophet. So the Quran will tell you you have to bury your dead as soon as possible, right? Like under the Jewish tradition, cremation is not permitted. The Prophet also said to have unmarked graves. So if you go to Saudi Arabia, the graves are not marked. So do you look at what's happening here in the Boston area and the controversy over Tamerlan Tsarnaev and what to do with him? People have been coming up with various reasons on why he should not be buried. Do you just look at those as excuses? I look at them as knee-jerk reactions. Who are we to take on the role of God and decide, you know, dust to dust, we all have to go. What kind of eternal life he has, whether in heaven or hell, it's up to God uh, to decide. Uh, But I think this is a dangerous precedence, because what we are actually saying is he wasn't a good enough Muslim, or we don't accept him as a Muslim or any other faith, and we will decide how his uh, last rites would be done. And I think where do you stop? Tomorrow we could say alcoholics. They after, you know, it could be wife abusers. So I think that's a slippery slope. I can see that there's a lot of fear in the Boston community. People are afraid of backlash against the mosque if it carries or an imam if he carries the But I think instead of making it into such a big deal, if it was done quietly. Mm. And also, you know, we are only thinking of him right now. We also have to think about his family that needs to move on. Have you ever encountered a case like this where the subject is socially reprehensible to such a degree that no one will accept the corpse? I have had personal experience because I do the washing and palliative care as a volunteer. And I have come in a situation where I was questioned why we were giving a Muslim funeral who was known to be an alcoholic all his life and never practiced the faith. And my answer to them was, how do you know that the last breath he did not seek forgiveness? Can anybody guarantee me that? And so we went ahead and we did the funeral. Shahina Sadiqi, president of the Islamic Social Services Association in Winnipeg, Canada. Thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Clearly, finding a final resting place for a body involves a lot of variables. At the very least, it requires someone to claim the body and a physical plot of land for burial. And those are two things that are often missing when the deceased is a homeless person. Well, in a city in Denmark, there's an effort to designate a place where the homeless can receive a decent burial. If you can name the city, you'll have pinpointed the answer to today's GeoQuiz. We'll be back later with the answer. Now, this next item is making headlines today. German authorities arrested a 93-year-old man today who they allege was a guard at the Nazi concentration camp at Auschwitz. The man who once lived in the United States claims he was just a cook there. With the passage of time, it's becoming harder to shed new light on the crimes the Nazis committed during World War II or before the war, during their rise to power. But new research in Germany has uncovered many more places tied to Nazi atrocities than previously thought. The world's Jerry Haddon traveled to Berlin to find out more. Everyone knows Auschwitz, the Warsaw Ghetto. But few people, not even ordinary Germans, know what took place in 1933 on a street in Berlin called Petersburgerstrasse. Number 86. At this place, there was the um, fascist um, cafe or place called Keglerheim. That's Amelie Ottmann, a German researcher. She's reading an inconspicuous plaque hung on the side of the building here in Berlin's Friedrichshain neighborhood. And it was it turned into a murderous uh, cellar in 1933. And that hundreds of um, people from Friedrichshain, like this area were uh, tortured and murdered in here, in this place. Murdered by the Nazis' first paramilitary organization, known by its initials as the SA. 
The essay carried out torture of political opponents, Jews, and others in the basement of this facility, just when the Nazis came to power in 1933. Historians like Atma know this spot. What they didn't know until recently, that there were hundreds more like it in Berlin alone at the dawn of the Third Reich. A team of investigators have now located and marked 220 such terror sites in the city. I can read anything on this building, so... I can't either. Atma takes me on a tour of a handful of previously unknown torture facilities, makeshift prisons, sweatshops, brothels. On one street, two torture sites stood only a couple of blocks apart. Today, one is a Vietnamese takeout joint. The other? Uh, let's try the French restaurant. <laughs> I would be surprised if they knew, but... Uh... Yeah. Atman is right. The owner of this eatery, Francois, says all he knows is that some years ago this place was a club for sadomasochists. A club sadomaso. This is the only information that I can give you. A restaurant owner in the dark is one thing, but even historians didn't learn about many of these sites until recently. They were only discovered when a vast and secretive archive of Nazi records, known as the International Tracing Service, or ITS, was finally opened to the public in 2008, under pressure from Jewish groups and scholars from around the world. The ITS was founded after World War II to help millions of people displaced by the fighting. Stefan Oerdler, with the German Historical Institute in Washington, D.C., says the documents were used for humanitarian, not historical purposes. Just to help survivors to prove that they were prisoners of certain camps and ghettos. As a way to get compensation from the West German government. The German bureaucrats running the ITS also argued that opening the files would have violated strict privacy laws. Among the millions of meticulously kept Nazi records are the names of concentration camp victims, prisoners of war, execution dates, and, Erdler says, even detailed information about who worked in the camps. He says what he finds most striking about the trove of data isn't the scope of the Nazi system, but what it implies about the larger German society at the time. To run this big system of camps and ghettos, you needed much more people to supply and support the system. Food, clothes, uh, furniture, everything has to be produced and, and the whole society was involved in this process. So there was no real neutral position of bystander. The researcher Atman says the old argument among war-era Germans that they didn't know what the Nazis were up to doesn't hold up, at least not for residents of big cities such as Berlin or Hamburg. And it isn't just the density of terror sites that reinforces that belief. This is a former prison in the Köpenick neighborhood of Berlin. It was the site of the worst violence in Berlin in 33. A total of 24 people were killed here and around Kupenik over a five-day period in June. It's known as the Week of Blood. Through the ITS records, historians are learning that many of the killings that week and at other times were carried out by neighbors, people who knew each other. Sometimes there were personal vendettas. Sometimes it was about social class. Stefan Oerdler of the German Historical Institute says the motives were as complex as the network itself, a network that served as a model for even more sinister work later on. Yeah, I, th I think the early net of, of campsites, torture sites, and, and detention um, centers in 1933 was a ground f for experiments and a ground to take the knowledge up for building up a well-structured and well-organized camp system. Concentration camps, that is. The Köpenick prison has been turned into a museum, and later this year will open a big exhibition to commemorate the 80th anniversary of the Week of Blood and the Nazi rise to power. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Berlin, Germany.
Our next story is about a rock band from Iran called the Yellow Dogs. Its members used to play in Tehran's underground music scene, but fled after being featured in a movie about that scene. Now the Yellow Dogs are based in Brooklyn. Bruce Wallace has their story. There's a great video for the Yellow Dogs song Dance Floor. Three women walk, run, and dance their way through New York City. They party on the grand stone lions in front of the main public library, cartwheel through Times Square, hang upside down in a subway car. They're laughing the whole time. They get onlookers laughing too. If you know a bit of the story of the Yellow Dogs, how they played underground shows in Tehran because it was impossible to rock out in the open, and how they decided to flee Iran a few years ago, it's tempting to see the video as a joyful political statement about freedom, maybe about women's rights too. Obash, the band's lead singer, says people always expect them to be political. We should be like political. We should be like, I don't know, something like Rage Against the Machines and stuff. No, we're, we're like, seriously, we just want to play music. They want to make music for a broader audience, so they write lyrics in English instead of Farsi. That surprises some people, too. They have this expectation from us, but mostly Iranians, like Iranians that they live in America, that like they get shocked. They're like, dude, like, why you guys don't sing in Farsi? Come on, like, I'll, I'll do whatever the f- I want. Like, that's why I moved here. <laughs> the band moved to the U.S. in early 2010. Things had gotten hairy after they were featured in the film No One Knows About Persian Cats. The film tells a kind of fictional story about young musicians trying to get by in Tehran. I say kind of because it features actual musicians from the city in fairly true-to-life scenarios. In this scene, the two main musicians in the film go to visit the Yellow Dogs at their rooftop practice space. Obash is peering over the edge waiting for a neighbor to leave. Which he finally does, and the band starts practicing. Until they lose power. The government didn't know that like there's a band like us. We threw concerts with our friends. Like they didn't know about that, and like that's extremely illegal to do that uh, without a permission. So like yeah, after the movie, like won a can prize and exploded. After that, we thought yeah, it's the time to get the hell out of here. The Yellow Dogs first came to the U.S. on artist visas. They'd been invited to play at the South by Southwest and CMJ festivals. A year later, three of the four of them were granted asylum. The drummer Arash's case is still pending. Now they're living the dream, sharing an apartment with a handful of other Iranian expat artists in the part of Brooklyn where all the young bands live. The band wrote This City for their adopted hometown. You want to be a great engineer, you want to go to NASA, like from Iran. You study hard, you try to apply for Harvard, Stanford. You, you want to go to that place where you can, like, make progress. And this was the place. And, like, it, this, like, New York City and, like, the scene here was, like, our Harvard University, kind of. They've also gotten to tour the U.S. a couple times and play serious venues with some of their favorite bands. We are from Iran, and, like, like I always said, if we were, like, born and raised in America or, like, like born and raised, like, in a Western country anywhere, 
we wouldn't appreciate it as much as we do right now to come from a country like Iran and like and be able to come out here and like see like wow like I used to we used to make our own venue to be able to play music. I saw the Yellow Dogs recently at the club where they played their first U.S. show three years ago. They closed their set with this city. The women from the video were in the front row the whole time, dancing like crazy. For the world, I'm Bruce Wallace in Brooklyn. As Bruce mentioned, the Yellow Dogs appeared in the film No One Knows About Persian Cats. I interviewed the film's director, Baman Gobadi, back in 2010, and you can listen to that conversation at theworld.org. You're listening to The World on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We were speaking earlier on the program about where the homeless get buried when there is no family member to collect the body. Well, that dilemma has prompted a cemetery for the homeless. It's an idea that's coming soon to Denmark. Michael Espenson heads a homeless advocacy group called Give Den Hand, or Give a Hand. Michael, how did you come up with this idea for, it's not a whole cemetery, but a plot in a cemetery for the homeless? Yeah, it's a plot. The idea originated when we were standing with a, a homeless man, you know, who was dead and nobody wanted him. He didn't have any family. There was just nobody to collect the body. So we thought, what can we do about this? Because when you die as a homeless in in, uh, in Denmark, the city takes care of the burial. You may be put anywhere where there was a place for you. So. And what happened to that man that you were concerned about a couple of years ago? The city took care of it. I don't know where he is. His friends can't, you know, go out and say hello to him or anything. We don't. We don't know where he is. So that's the idea of it all. We, we have a. We gonna have a place where they can get buried, and the, and the other homeless can come by, you know, and say hello, and yeah, maybe drink a beer, whatever. Well, explain to us what you find wrong with uh, homeless uh, people being buried in a potter's field or a common grave. You know, as a I'm a I'm a family man, you know, and when I die, I'd like to get buried beside my family, and that's the usual thing to do here in Denmark. And when you're living on the street, they renounce the family. They, you know, there's no connection to the family. So the other homeless people get to be your family. That's what happens. Now, tell us where this cemetery would actually be located. It's going to be in a in a big cemetery in a part of Copenhagen called Narbo. It's a suburb. It's a very big and very old churchyard. I think uh, Hans Christian Andersen is, is lying there. What kind of reactions have you been getting from people who are homeless? How do they feel about this? In general, they get touched, you know. They think it's a very, very good idea. They are so happy. And the city has uh, helped to pay. And we have an artist called Life Sylvester who's going to make a sculpture. It's going to stand there. It's called People of the Street. And a very beautiful uh, sculpture of some odd characters. The homeless I've told about it, they, they all say they, they, it's really nice. They'd like to go down there and say, hello, old chap, and, you know, it's going to be a gathering place, yeah? Well, I imagine a lot of them are really grateful to you. They are really grateful. They are. Homeless people are, are nice people, too. Michael Espenson heads a homeless advocacy group called Give Din Hand. He's been telling us about a proposed cemetery to be located in the neighborhood of Narbro in Copenhagen in Denmark, the answer to our geo-quiz. Michael, thanks so much, and good luck. Thank you, and uh, bye-bye. Finally today, we're going to remember one of the great stars of 20th century ballet, a British-born dancer named Frederick Franklin. He died in New York over the weekend, aged 98. 
The world's Alex Galifant profiled Franklin on this program about three years ago. And Alex, you posted online last night that he was one of the nicest interviewees you've ever met. Margot, he was a complete delight. He was 95 when I met him in his apartment in New York. And this place was like a greenhouse in the clouds. It had plants absolutely everywhere. And Frederick Franken was was impish. He was playful and and dignified. You know, from my short encounter with him, at least, he was a a sweet and lovely man. And this is how he introduced himself to me. All right, I'm Frederick Franklin. And I was born in Liverpool, England. And I've spent most of my life, my wonderful life here in America. And Alex, uh, last time I checked, Liverpool wasn't famous for its ballet culture. I'm assuming Frederick Franklin didn't just go straight from Liverpool to New York. Remind us. Right, there's no Liverpool equivalent of the Bolshoi, to be sure. But when Franklin was a boy, a company of Russian dancers did come to town. It was the Ballet Russe run by the Russian impresario Sergei Diaghilev. And the Ballet Russe was based in Paris, right? Exactly. And the company kind of revolutionized the way dance was presented. Uh, Diaghilev brought in collaborators from other art forms, such as the composer Stravinsky and the fine artist uh, Henri Matisse. And luckily for Freddie Franklin, the company liked to travel. Whatever prompted them to get out on the road, I've no idea, but it was fortunate for all of us to be able to see them. Franklin was entranced, but there seemed to be no way in for him. There wasn't even a real ballet school in England at the time. So a couple of years later, he headed to London, age 17, to study tap dancing. And then he saw an ad in the paper. And it said, boy wanted Paris and an address. So this was an address in London? Yes, it was an audition for the Jackson Troupe a song and dance outfit that had once featured a young Charlie Chaplin. But because Franklin wasn't yet 18, he was only accepted if he lived with a French family. This was in 1931. And Paris, of all places, the food. I wasn't used to eating all this um, garlic and all the other wonderful things. That was a sort of a taste I had to get used to. But I managed... Frederick Franklin only stayed in Paris for a short while while he was there. He danced with Josephine Baker, among others. Mm. And he went back to England to join the revolution in homegrown ballet that was happening there. And he takes all these turns. I'm guessing that after that, uh, the life of Frederick Franklin, I guess, took another turn. Yeah, you guessed it. In 1937, Franklin got a phone call from Leonid Massin, who was the then choreographer of the Ballet Russe. And uh, Franklin and Massin uh, met up. And I looked into those big brown eyes, and he looked at me, and before long he said, uh, you will be a premier dancer in my new ballet company, here's a contract for five years, sign it. And I just signed it. That was how it all began with the Russian ballet. Report here, do this, on the coat. I went on the train, on the boat, did it all, got to Monte Carlo, and that's how it was. So this was now the Ballet Russe rebranded as the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. Yes, and it was there that Franklin partnered Alexandra Danilova, one of the same dancers he'd seen years earlier in Liverpool. And they ended up dancing together for 20 years, becoming one of the most celebrated partnerships in the history of ballet. Wow, talk about dancing through the 20th century. So how did he finally arrive here in the U.S.? He came to dance on a tour. He loved it here and he stayed. And he was performing at the Met in New York even well into his 90s, playing small roles such as the tutor in Swan Lake. But Marco, after appearing on all of these world-famous stages, he most remembered a performance he'd given in Liverpool when he was just eight years old 
and a program for the show he and his mother found afterwards. My my name, someone written, a born dancer, and that about sums the whole thing up. That person had seen me and written, just wrote whomever it was. And we, I know we had the program for so long. A born dancer. Maybe that's the whole story. <laughs> Prescient program notes. That is the story. <laughs> After our interview, he walked me to the elevator to take me downstairs out of his apartment. But before the elevator door shut, Freddie walked sideways out of view, waving his hand slowly and saying goodbye, goodbye. It was like he was walking off stage, and it was utterly, utterly charming. Oh, what a fantastic parting shot, Alex. Thanks so much for sharing the story with us again. Thank you, Marco. That's our show today from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for being with us. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation, and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.